Hello and welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen Show. We're now in season two of the 100 Mass Men series where I anonymously interview different men from all around the world about gender roles and expectations in the modern world today. And this week, we're getting really deep into taboo conversations, especially around sex, our kinks, and how to communicate and exercise consent. Mass Man number 48 is the little brother. With older sisters of four and seven years, he shares his journey in understanding women by observing their behaviors. One of the most memorable experiences was actually in dating a feminist and learning about BDSM and how to exercise consent in order to please his partner. As someone who always wants to encourage the subject of consent, I realized even I struggle with discussing it in practice and properly articulating my boundaries. So let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, so I was actually born in South Africa, uh, born and raised in Johannesburg, and it was a really kind of beautiful upbringing. It was a upbringing which was very much surrounded by nature. It was very much integrated at a beautiful school in a wonderful setting. However, it was incredibly insulated. In South Africa, you kind of live in a bit of a bubble where you you have your home, you have your social life, you have the set places that you go to, and as a child, your parents ferry you to and from. You don't really have too much of the ability to hop on public transport, go to places in the city by yourself. The cosmopolitan aspect is very limited, at least within uh, the community which I was. And it was a very, I would say, settled childhood for the most part from <laughs> until I was about eight or nine. I was also raised a Jehovah's Witness, which was a very interesting religious upbringing. But I mean, as a kid, I had no idea that that was wow. abnormal. So it was interesting from that perspective too, being very much indoctrinated into that Jehovah's Witness way of believing. I'm not one now. I have kind of no religious orientation that I am very fixated on currently or very mm -hmm. much adherent to. So that in itself was really interesting growing up. And in terms of the relationship with my parents, <laughs> that is also another very interesting question. My father was diagnosed with cancer, uh, kidney cancer, when I was eight years old, and he passed away when I was 12. And for those four years, it was, it was a very interesting tumultuous time. So it was, uh, we were by no means hard done by. My mom did the best she could for us kids, but there was obviously internal strife. My sisters and I acting out in various ways, shapes and forms could uh, in no way being easy for her, but we had a very supportive grandmother and supportive cousins and extended extended family. The relationship with my family has always been incredibly positive. My grand being the key matriarch, the driving force behind the family. Uh, my mom, my sisters, all incredibly empowered women and very much driven in their own rights. Are you the youngest kid out of <laughs> your family? Like how many sisters do you have? So I have two sisters, two older sisters. And yes, I am the youngest, which was actually quite interesting growing up too. What gave me away? Honestly, I just I just took a guess. That's so funny. I guess I just <laughs> sensed that from you. That's hilarious. So what would you say are the biggest lessons that you learned from your your sisters growing up? Uh, biggest lessons. First of all, how to take emotional abuse. Uh, no, as a kid, it was just that they would uh, nitpick and just do uh, and be sisters. At the end of the day, they would be fun, playful. As a child, I would have my nails painted. I was put in dresses because I was a little doll until I grew too big mm. for all of the little items of clothing. So that was pretty ridiculous. But biggest lesson I've learned was probably to understand respect women with the same level of respect, which I never saw my sisters get from men. 
in their lives. Interesting. Do you have an example of when that kind of unraveled for you? Yeah, a couple actually. So there was the first occasion where when I was about, I'd say 12 or 13, my one sister had a boyfriend round and there was a whole, he was being very pushy. We were all watching a movie together, which I thought was very weird because he kept trying to make out with my sister at the same time. And I was just thinking, okay, cool. There's like a 12 year old on the couch and this is really awkward for me. And my sister was also being like, no, no, stop, stop, please. Like my brother's right there, stop. And he just kept pushing, kept pushing. And I I could tell it made her uncomfortable. And I didn't, like, I I was also pretty uncomfortable, but I didn't want to say anything because him being older than me, my sister's, it's four years and seven years, the age difference. As him being older than me, it was quite uh, an adult, you don't, or an older person, you don't really contradict them and tell them what they can and can't do as a child. So that was just one of the key examples where he was just very pushy and I could tell it made her very uncomfortable. And yeah, for me, that was a very key sign. For another was uh, when my older sister was getting married and I was about 16, 17. And before the wedding, her, well, my now, my now brother-in-law and her were having a massive blowout and he got so angry and just started screaming and shouting and it made her so frightened. And not necessarily they, saying that it's not okay to get angry and upset, but to scream, shout, rage, throw things around in an immature, almost juvenile show of emotion is frightening to a person who's five foot when you are six foot two. Just conduct, how to kind of, a couple of lessons of just like conduct, how to behave myself around women were really kind of key messages and takeaways, as well as just an understanding of how things hurt when it's done to them. Mm-hmm. Being cheated on, they went through when they found out mm-hmm. boyfriends cheated, the emotional strain they had. There was actually also a really kind of key, uh, this is kind of a topic, but when my sister and two of her friends were, out in South Africa, they had, uh, her one friend was a little bit, um, at that age, she was like, as most teenagers are at times, we go through weight fluctuations. She was a little bit on uh, like on the overweight side from a BMI scale per se, but she was carrying a little bit more weight than she personally was comfortable with. And there was an experience where they went out to the mall and there was a guy who asked for a phone number and it was a whole big, wonderful deal. And they were so excited. And then this guy completely crushed her by saying, oh, I just asked because I thought it was the right thing to do, not because I actually liked you. It was actually a really shitty thing to see because, I mean, I was always kind of on the periphery of my sisters and their friend groups, just being around with my younger friends and just being around them in general and seeing that happen and how much it crushed her. It was just, it was just very gutting in the first place. And they made me just think, what a dick. Wow, that's insane. So when you were growing up then in your own adulthood, how did you interact with other men that might have behaved in those ways? Did you always like mediate around that or or did you want to participate based on peer pressure? I'm sad to say that a fair portion of the time was actually a bit of peer pressure because when I moved to the UK, uh, my entire family moved across, I went to an all-boys school and being within an all-boys school, there was a lot of juvenile masculine tendencies that tended to run about and we would make very off-tone comments, say stupid things, be hyper-aggressive, display many of those kind of toxic masculinity traits that teenagers would display because we didn't know any better and nobody at school told us any better. And even if we did know better, we thought we knew it all anyway. So it was, I'm sad to say, at those points in time, I I did some of those things myself. I said some of those things. I would, it was all about social standing and wanting to be 
as good with the guys and seen as cool and popular as well as fun and interesting and just doing what would get me what I wanted and less what I knew was right. And what do you think it was what you wanted at that time? Is it what other people expected you to want? Yeah, in a way, it was what the expectations of the set for me. But at the same time, I, when it came to dating or getting girls or things like that, it was all very kind of woman-driven because at all boys' school, you're deprived of co-ed lifestyle. And I think a lot of it was just kind of, okay, dating, partners, having sex, going to do all kind of promiscuous things. It, it just actually getting to that stage and that being a primary force and drive behind a lot of my social behavior in those days. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, I mean, when I lived in in England and just experiencing European culture of just like drinking happened earlier, sex happened earlier. There was a lot more open conversation, I think, about sex, drugs, and alcohol among kids and their parents, which was like such a no-no. Like it was all secrecy and um, <laughs> just rules in North America. So we don't have that same context. So bringing it over when I, I saw that openness, I did appreciate that because at least there wasn't that like hiding from your parents yeah. concept. Like there's a lot of like people sneaking out of houses where at least like that didn't happen from what I saw in the UK. But with experiencing sex, drugs, and alcohol at such an early age, you know, in like your early teenage years, how do you think that contributed to how you value other people? And how did you value women at that time? How has that changed overall? Hmm. I think experiencing it at a much earlier age gave me a better understanding when I got to my later years. <laughs> the sex, drugs, and alcohol were a lot of fun and very new, very kind of like that bright, shiny, new penny feel. And it was exciting because it's all developing as you are. And that's the experience that I had. But I also had a very open family who I could turn to and ask any questions. But the lack of a father figure meant I relied more on my peers for their sources of information than I did on any sort of, I suppose, male figure in my life apart from peers, which is, I understand, natural to an extent. But it would have been nice to have a little bit more guidance, uh, particularly around just sort of boundaries, understanding, like consent, understanding like where you should like hmm, understanding consent and where you should just be driving towards what's important, understanding of even if at that point in time the comprehension wasn't fully there, but understanding of this is where you should be aiming to, not necessarily doing other things for the wrong reasons. But I think having that exposure from a younger age was really, really fantastic, particularly when I uh, met people from North America and where actually my, one of my exes is from and their exposure was so much more limited so much more limited here it, people were drinking from 13 14 mm -hmm. onwards which i'm not i'm not condoning by any way by any means but it was less of a forbidden substance by the time they got to 18 than it was with some of the north american people i encountered at 2021 when they were in europe and they just went gun ho it was crazy yeah, that's crazy. I think it's interesting to see just like North American culture and what was not allowed um, and how that would fuel our drive to want to consume more of it or not have a handle of it. And I wonder what your thoughts about that are in terms of sex, you know, because it was something that both men and women seem to want to do, you know, and it was funny when I came to England, I had 
a North American context of what I thought London was and everyone was prim and proper and that was not the case. <laughs> and, and the girls that I saw were just like, just like guys, you know, like unable to stand and, you know, wearing like two day old makeup, you know, and just doing whatever they wanted to do. And I, I enjoyed watching that freedom, but at the same time, I'm like, how can you let loose so much where you like, you can't even see straight, you know? Um, and, and I had just like an intrinsic fear of that, but then I also saw how quickly people would just bring these girls into cabs, you know, send them home and make sure they're safe. Right. So what would you, how would you explain what London pub culture is like, um, from both sides, um, and the safety net, or maybe it's not safe. I don't know what your experience has been like in comparison to mine. <laughs> right. London pub culture. Well, I suppose London sex culture as well, because I've, I've been very fortunate in the fact that I've had the ability to tour around lots of Europe with work as well as lots of North America, uh, for like just personal and work related reasons. And London is its own beast. It's entirely, it's own, in a way, it's its own country within Europe. It's so cosmopolitan and there is so much going on here that it's hard to compare to the rest of England. But London pub culture itself, the ability you have to walk into almost any bar, strike up a conversation with the most, with the weirdest of reasons, grab someone a beer, have a drink, have a kiss, do some things in and around the club, go home, hook up, and then head back to yours and do it all again the next night is, I'd say, pretty unique to the city. It's uh, a very carefree city. It's a very much, from a guy's perspective, that, that going out with your mates, playing things like pub golf, where you have 18 bars, nine bars in the night, and like three drinks as par, working your way through it to essentially play off each other and get as drunk as possible. Oh, no, I can drink three, I can drink four at each bar, do forfeits, have fun. It's a really wonderful place to do it, but it does result in quite almost a toxic lad behavior, particularly with guys, where that drunkard state can lead to a very, I suppose, like higher levels of toxic masculinity, high levels of kind of like drinking aggression and just being very pushy, lack of boundaries, lack of consent. The fact that I can pinpoint to every single one of my female friends and say that they have been groped, ungroped at a nightclub for, or at a bar at any, at any point on a night out is kind of horrific where that's just the social norm. And it's like, yeah, it happened, but that shouldn't be a kind of, yeah, it happened moment. And that's unfortunately the scenario which happens with when you're out with a bunch of lads. It's the wolf whistling when a hot girl walks by. It's the leering when they're, near, when they're nearby as well. It's, it's feeling like they have the ability to approach any woman, say anything and expect that, oh, if I buy you a drink, I have the ability to take you home or you owe me something which is a really a weird concept, but it's a prevailing concept here as well. Yeah, I think that's interesting because there was that duality. There's the openness of the casual sex hookup space. Mm. And that did make me feel comfortable in that sense, right? Because everyone was doing it and it seemed pretty respectful in that sense. But then there are some people that take advantage of that space and you know turn it into something for their own personal gain if it is an expression of power or control or something along the lines of that. Yeah. So that's how I've seen when toxic masculinity turns into a problem. Do you think that it is a way to appear more powerful and control cooler among friends? Is that like a, a part of that lad culture? Or do you think it's just 
a formulation of expectation just because it's always been that way. So that's how people are just going to act. Mm. I think it's it's not necessarily alone to lag culture, but it is very prevalent within okay. it. So I've seen the same traits played out, as I said, in Europe and America, where men can hook it's their goal to hook up with, with as many women as possible to have sex with as many people as possible because that's your social standing that's where you want to be that's the pinnacle of coolness that is a wonderful achievement within that like like culture but god forbid a woman does exactly the same thing and she is phenomenally slut shamed for what reason why should mm-hmm. women enjoy sex less than men it doesn't make any logical sense but for some reason if one gender does it it's cool and another one does it it's absolutely shameful which is i think a big contribution towards it and the fact that for men to have that as a notch in their belt to reach a higher level of social standing i think that's a huge problem and that's where it really comes into play because the more they do the more they want it <laughs> the more they're willing to push for it and the more they push for it the further it moves into that toxic masculinity further it moves from the realms of consent into assault and with mm-hmm. alcohol thrown into the mix the lack of inhibitions there just absolutely are a excuse the phrase but a cocktail for disaster mm-hmm. yeah so how have you seen or how have you personally changed your actions, you know, from expecting that this is just the way things are and, you know, one thing leads to another and there's no conversation to now incorporating that. Did did that begin with a demand from society or did that begin with a demand from a partner? Like how did, how did that awareness come for you in terms of requiring to change your ways? How did that begin? Um, I think it really began with my first, uh, I'd say first serious partner, first serious long-term relationship. It really began with my North American partner. And I like to think of her as both <laughs> my biggest teacher, also as one of the biggest, uh, <laughs> the most toxic person I've had in my life from a relationship perspective. And the realms of consent discussion and everything just kind of stems from there. From her, I delved into the world of BDSM and getting into a lot more of the kinkier aspects of sex, exploring my own sexuality to a higher degree and actually enjoying it a lot more. She was the catalyst for that. She was the reason why I started doing a lot more because she was curious about it. Therefore, I'm constantly wanting to please and constantly wanting to have that achieve, have them achieve pleasure. So that was a driving force. So I constantly want to learn more and do more and all of these, all of these areas. Plus, she was also very... Oh, she she also challenged me a lot. She was very challenging in the sense that she challenged my own views of myself. She challenged me to think outside the box. She opened my eyes to new realms of thought discussion and yeah, thought discussion and consent actually to a very large degree. She was a graduate of Smith College in the US, which is a very feminist college. And I thought I had a good understanding of feminism before I met her. And I was completely shocked and um, completely shocked to my core by the fact that I had no understanding about feminism and, or I had a very limited understanding about feminism. And that education just kind of progressed throughout our relationship. So in that respect, she was my biggest teacher. She taught me what was toxic, what was not. She taught me what areas of consent I needed to look into and what I didn't. Because while she was a very high proponent of feminism consent discussion, talking about all of the incredible like things that she wanted, she wasn't a very good proponent of actually 
saying what she needed. It was these ideas around what was possible, what, what she thought she would like. And then we would gauge in the behaviors and she would turn around at the end of it and say, that actually really hurt me or I really didn't like that, which to me shook me to my core because I get off on pleasing people. So that was then damaging for me in my own experience of sex. So the way she went about all of those behaviors taught me how not to do them for future relationships. I have so many questions. I think it's really funny that <laughs> oh, this is this is the problem that I have, because I would say that I might mm-hmm. be overly knowledgeable about feminism, studying women's studies and and every on all of my academia. And mm-hmm. I'm already too intense for women, you know, so speaking to men <laughs> who have no experience, it's even worse. And I think there's a level of, you know, tone. Right. So as soon as I start talking about it, it just feels like, oh, no, she's going to say all these crazy things and I'm going to feel really stupid and I can't say anything about this. Right. But then when you talk to a partner and you say, hey, okay, these uh, types of communication need to exist in order for us to practice consent. But there are no standards of how to have that conversation. So I even experienced myself not knowing how to articulate what I actually need. I just articulate like, hey, this is a subject matter that we need to talk about. And then I realize like, it's not really 50-50, you know, in terms of who's deciding what sexual activity we're going to do together, because technically we are together doing it, but it's at least like 51-49 on the woman because it's her body that's, you know, <laughs> being penetrated, right? And I think that's that's where I would get stumped on how to communicate that. So once you had that experience with her who, you know, brought the conversation to light, how did you end up being able to speak on the same page and arrive at the right place? Because obviously you don't want to be having this conversation after the fact. So how did you kind of arrive at that consensus together? Well, it's actually, you've just put your finger on the problem is that we kept arriving at the same conversation after the fact. And that was the most damaging thing ever because I kept feeling like all I'm doing is hurting her when she wants to explore these areas safely with a limited amount of understanding about what it actually means to engage in any sort of BDSM safely in the first place. So like any good student at that point in time, I read a lot and I learned a lot and I experienced a lot. And I went to a lot of places and listened to talks, went to uh, like got in contact with kind of key individuals in the BDSM community and just kind of like sex positive community. Listen to the Guys Who Fucked podcast by Karen and Christine, the Manhole podcast with Billy Prasida and all of the guest speakers that they would get on for those shows who were phenomenally educated in the subject areas. And the more I learned, the more I realized actually what we have been engaging in was not a very safe or very kind of open and communicative way of approaching sexual experiences. And the more I read, the more I learned, the more I found myself surpassing her in terms of understanding for how to engage in these practices. And the more I surpassed her, the more it irritated her and the more kind of backlash the relationship got. And it just kept feeding into a very kind of toxic loop. I'd want to please, she'd get annoyed, I feel bad, she feels bad. And it just repeated the cycle again and again and again until eventually it fell through for many, many reasons. Also her also the couple of the fact that we were long distance for the better part of three and a half four years while we were engaging in uh, while she was uh, while she was doing her law degree I was finishing off my master's here in London because I was going down a very much kind of clean psych route and then trying to make a move to the US which was the long-term plan it was just very difficult to engage with that because she needed someone there physically 
and would therefore result in kind of cheating behavior, which then made me feel incredibly insecure. And I developed my own toxic traits associated with that in terms of invasion of privacy. I would, uh, I read through her messages, which was, I mean, I, I look back and I go, Jesus, what kind of crazy boss were you? But then I look at the behavior traits and like, actually, I understand how I got there. I just never want to get there again. Interesting. So you kind of gain that self-awareness upon reflection of actually performing those actions. And you're like, holy shit, this is like uncharacteristically me. And then, you know, how to, how to get back to it. So what did you learn in your research on BDSM and communicating consent? And how was that different exactly from the way that you and your partner were communicating? Like what was, what was missing and what could have been changed to alleviate all of that anxiety so that you guys could get more transparent and, and ensure that safety and security was there? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you actually put your finger on the button there. Communication. What we discussed was desires and those desires never went further than, oh, let's try this. Sure. That sounds great. Engage in it. Oh no, that was bad for X and X and X and Y reason. And during the reading, one of the key and first and foremost things that I encountered in engaging in any sort of explorative sexual behavior, it doesn't necessarily even have to be BDSM, but just explorative sexual behavior at all is the, the defining of hard and soft limits. What's a go? What's a no go? What is something that you are actually okay with? What are your hard limits of where you are like, no, in no way, shape or form am I going to do anal? It's just like, these are the very things which you need to establish from the get-go. Where are your lines? And what are you willing to kind of have a bit of a softer line and say, I'm willing to explore this, but maybe not right now. But communication was key. And the fact that we didn't have that open, transparent, honest communication from the get-go of very much along the lines of, I trust my partner to be able to engage in these acts, also knowing that they will not hurt me because I've told them so as well. The clear definition of where your boundaries are and also knowing that you have the ability to say no and trust that they're going to be okay with that. That's what my partner and I lacked at that point in time. And moving forward in all of the sexual relationships I've had, I've had since, they have been so positive for those reasons. I can look back at any of the people who I've been with since that point in time where they haven't worked out for, for whatever reasons, but my overall experience of them sexually have been overwhelmingly positive because there was communication. I love that. I think it's really interesting. There's two sides to it. There's the conversation of what is a hard and soft rule. I think usually yeah. when you're engaged in a partnership and you're trying to keep things exciting, you're just going to be like, oh, let's try this. Okay, let's try this. Okay. And it's just like, let's go try a new restaurant. But that's not the same if it's about sex, right? <laughs> and But that is how we're treating it, yeah. thinking like, oh yeah, this is just like a fun experience. But actually like you didn't go deeper in that understanding. And then I think the second thing that needs to be clear is when no is said and that's received mm. instantly, you know, versus it's like a soft yeah, no, or absolutely. if that even is a soft no, but you know what I mean? I think that is the, the complication. So how has that worked for you speaking to other women about how to communicate? No, because I think women don't know how to say no clearly enough for men to hear it that's i mean that's a really interesting question i think i'm very fortunate because i'm a very verbal person i'm able to communicate my wants desires and needs verbally and that is in turn reciprocated by my partners to for them to therefore entrust the same information to me so in terms of how i would say is the best way for to kind of reiterate that no so it hits home is to just 
uh, there is actually no just to clearly define what define what that means to engage with as much as much trust with your with your partner as possible. If you can't trust them to <laughs> stop when you say no, you shouldn't be having sex with them in the first place. It's uh, if you can't trust them to that ability, then you are not in a safe space and you're putting yourself at risk to a certain degree there. And I know that is very, from a male perspective, who's, I mean, I understand my complete privilege in this respect that I have never had to put be in that situation myself where I've had to worry about a partner not stopping and me not being able to stop them if I say no. But at the same time, I also have been with partners that I trust that when I say no, they will stop. So building that trust, I think that trust building exercise at the beginning of the relationship, which we all go through that, hi, how are you, how are you doing? How's your night? What's your name? Like being able to <laughs> validate and build that from that point in time is so crucial to then exploring in these certain areas. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think trust is a huge thing. And I think when you don't have that trust, it's like a combat, you know, to see who who wins yeah. in destroying the other person or, you know, making them feel bad. <laughs> and then you in turn also feel bad, you know, because you did it and no one wants to make other people feel bad. So, <laughs> you know, just this horrible cycle of of misery, right? So I think I think it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. I want to yeah, wrap up with a couple of questions with you. The first Ooh, question shoot. is what do you think are the biggest challenges in communicating male vulnerability with women? Biggest challenges with conveying male vulnerability. I think those really have to be the fact that there's a big social stigma on what it is to be a man. As a man who's grown up without a adolescent and adult father figure, I've had to define what I view for myself as being a man. I've had very little input from others. So for me to express what I think it is to other women, absolutely fine. But because I'm comfortable with that, I've defined that for myself. And I don't really care if a woman turns around and laughs a little lot. But for other men, the vulnerability to be vulnerable with a partner, I think that's seen by society as weak. And that's that toxic masculinity trait, which is, I think, slowly starting to kind of be shining into the limelight. Someone's put the spotlight on and they've said, this is something which needs to be discussed more because it's resulting in very toxic behaviors. And you look at data alone where the sheer volume of male suicide is actually successful in the first attempt. The fact that there's a lack of men actually showing weakness because society tells them not to, that's resulting in so many toxic behaviors. I think that men just need to be open to the ability that, first of all, they have feelings. Everybody has feelings you're not alone <laughs> and to understand that they can share these things with others. It's, I, I think that's the, the biggest obstacle is that society tells them that it can't happen. The only way to overcome come it is to just start talking about it. Start talking about how you feel, acknowledge the fact that you have emotions. Mm-hmm. Sorry, easier I said question than done, right? <laughs> easier, easier said than done. Completely easier said than done. Again, I acknowledge the privilege with the fact that I have been surrounded by an entirely matriarchal family who have told me that it's perfectly all right to express my emotions. So fair. But in terms of others who haven't, yeah, I completely understand that it is difficult. But I think we live in a progressive enough society within certain Western communities that you won't be shamed for expressing the fact that you have all levels of emotions. I think it's a very, very accepting within, within, I'd say, the younger generation now. Okay. And then I guess my follow-up question to that would be, 
what would you suggest women can do differently to communicate with men to increase that safety to be able to be vulnerable in front of them? That's actually, so that's actually a very interesting question because I tend to do what some of the first dates which I ever do with a partner is, well, at least one of them is where you ask each other the, it's a, I think it's the hundred questions to fall in love with your partner. With your partner. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. And what mm-hmm. it does is it encourages a person to open up. It, you ask questions that you can't really give a yes or no answer to. They ask you to delve more into yourself. And what that does is it creates a platform for, or it creates foundations rather, for you to start building further conversations on, asking more, getting deeper, actually understanding a little bit more about who that person is. And I think the best thing that as female partners have taught me is just to, first of all, be vulnerable yourself. Vulnerability entices vulnerability. It's that trusting relationship that you can build with a partner by opening up. And sometimes you need to be the first person to open up to draw someone out of their shell. But at the same time, just keep asking questions, keep just keep the lines of communication open. But just uh, yeah, engage in asking deep questions. Not a, are you okay? Yeah, no. It's just get deeper, ask more. I think I, that's a very simplified way of looking at it. I'm doing a terrible, I'm doing a very botched job of explaining it, mm-hmm. but <laughs> it's the best way I've found personally for drawing out someone who doesn't want to be vulnerable and being vulnerable myself and mm-hmm. partner. I think, I think that's huge asking questions. I think we don't do that enough because we're so conditioned to want to say our piece first, right? And we're just waiting for our turn to say our piece versus like, let me just continue asking and then, and hopefully that will open up to something, right? And then you'll be able to speak after having all of that information by that mm. that time. I think once we like keep imposing our thoughts onto others, then that's when we get that resistance, right? Yeah, I think it's also got to do with the imposition of labels. So when in the same way we impose mm-hmm. our thoughts, we impose labels on others. Like, oh, you're toxic. Oh, you're aggressive. Oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. As soon as you start to label someone, you compartmentalize them. I know it's a very Foucauldian approach to kind of, deconstruct that and look at it on the broader picture but you look at as soon as you compartmentalize someone in your mind that's all the room you have for them in that sphere someone reacts this Mm -hmm. way oh they're aggressive not actually you've really upset them or oh Mm -hmm. someone is oh they're crying again they're just constantly depressed no they're actually going through something really really tough at the moment and they could use a little support it uh yeah just by deconstructing that box it gives someone the ability to do more so lack of just putting someone in that box lack of labeling is i found so huge in relationship it just broadens your mind to accept more of a person than society tells you you have to yeah absolutely and i think that's that's really generous to give that person you know access to be their full self rather than the label of the you know small version that you are putting them in right and i think we're so quick to to judge that you know we need to take that time to reflect and realize like hey this person needs to decide how they want to show up rather than you making that decision on behalf of them right last question for you <laughs> we talked about a whole bunch of things is there anything that jumped out at you that you would like to invite another man to elaborate on further in another episode on the show hmm. i'd really actually like to know from I'd love to hear from a man who has at any one point engaged in sexual assault and what 
their process was in a like a very positive way moving forward past moving past that who had engaged in it and then kind of faced the demons gone through the consequences and actually come out the other side to look back at their own experience and go hell that was wrong and how can we not make that happen again okay I'm I'm up for that challenge. I don't know how I'm going to find someone that's going to um, openly share that information with me. I think I've already had experience of people just trying to act like a martyr and like, oh, I never did anything wrong. It's like, yeah, you have. If you had yeah. to say that, then you've done something wrong versus the ones that like happily admit that like, oh, you know, I, I guess this is kind of maybe not the best example of my life, but I've done it. And, you know, I, I've, I've thought about it, but I don't know if anyone's gone that far, you know, to to, to legal consequences, you know, and then live to share it so i'll take that challenge <laughs> yeah i mean it would we'll be really see. really interesting to hear about yeah absolutely well thank you so much for this um it's been great i love this i love how it like turned into the conversation that it was so yeah <laughs> yeah 100 it's been absolutely Amazing. fascinating to talk to you listening back to this i remember conducting this interview actually while still in tulum bumming off a friend's wi-fi and getting kicked off zoom a bunch of times and I was in the middle of my own discussions with a new partner on consent and completely failing at explaining what my needs are. I just sounded like I was enforcing a bunch of rules to follow and not allowing any space to ask questions, dig deeper, and understand one another so that we can find common ground. What experiences have you had in articulating consent and having safe sex in relationships? Make sure to subscribe, and if you'd like to be on the show or know someone with a unique perspective, make sure to message me at Ms. Manichan on Instagram, and I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The 100 Masked Men.